Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. I sometimes feel that in Vancouver, it's partly that for a long time, this was like a podunk, smelly fishing port town, you know, like it was losing population in the 70s. And so I think people still have not been able to wrap their heads around Saskatoon to Hong Kong in one generation. Frances Beulah has covered civic issues in Vancouver for the last 30 years. And while housing and real estate has always been a major concern, she's found that interest from the general public has exploded in the last 10 years. I've started to describe it as being a bit like the pandemic. Like for a long time, the exponential growth of the problem is almost invisible. Like people don't think it really affects them. And then all of a sudden, there's this incredible climb to the point where it starts affecting everyone. Housing isn't just a touchy subject in Vancouver, it's become a total third rail. People lose friends over what side of the debate they fall on. Most people can agree that housing is stupidly expensive in Vancouver, especially compared to incomes. A recent report by Oxford Economics named Vancouver the least affordable housing market in North America. But no one can seem to agree why that's the case. One way of understanding how things got so fractious and what exactly these dividing lines are is to examine the history of one particular piece of land in the city. And that is False Creek. In the 1970s, a new party was elected to Vancouver City Council, the Electors Action Movement, or TEAM for short. If you ever listen to people talk about the early days of TEAM, it just sounds like a nerd fest in the best way. You know, people sitting down and talking about wanting to have policies for everything. That's Jesse Donaldson, the author of Land of Destiny, A History of Vancouver Real Estate. You heard from him in our last episode. As TEAM ascended to power, the city started to look to develop the industrial lands of False Creek. It had been the industrial heartland of Vancouver for decades, polluting the surrounding waters and gaining the nickname Shit Creek. By the 50s, as industry like sawmills moved away, it was deteriorating and the city needed to do something with it. 
at that point, False Creek was gross. Like, the air was so dirty down there that if you wore a white shirt to work in the morning, by noon it would have turned gray. Like, it was really gross. They started with the southern part of False Creek, and they took a different approach from most other developments in Vancouver. It wasn't just, okay, market housing free-for-all. They had plans about income types. They researched what people made in Vancouver and said, okay, we're going to have a third of this is going to be co-op, a third of it is going to be market, a third of it is going to be low-income housing. But the key thing was that they didn't sell the land, they just leased it. And with leasing land, suddenly now you have a lot more power to impose conditions. So that's one model which many urban progressives urge today. The city should use land under its control to create the conditions for affordable housing and mixed-use neighborhoods. But in the 1980s, team was gone, and Vancouver went in another direction to develop the northern section of False Creek. These were the Expo Lands, where the 1986 World's Fair was held. This was prime real estate, and the provincial government wanted to do something big with it. The government of the time decided that the best thing to do would be not to field any local offers or smaller offers. They wanted to just get this out the door as quickly as possible. So they sold the land as one big chunk rather than smaller bits. The provincial government sold the land to one of the richest men in the world, the Hong Kong tycoon Lee Ka Shin, in an absolutely sweetheart deal. And his company developed it into one of the densest parts of Vancouver. It's much more high rise than the south side. And at the beginning, it was seen as like this empty condo area. But, you know, you go there now and it's busy and the parks are filled, especially during COVID. The bike lane is packed, the grocery store, the tables are filled in front of it all the time. It's really transformed itself. And I know it feels too urban and too high rise for some people still. But I think, you know, it works for those who've chosen to live there. Now, how you think about these two developments is probably indicative of what you think the main problem in Vancouver real estate is. On one side, you have the people who look at a development like False Creek South and see that it just lacks the kind of density needed for a city like Vancouver, where tens of thousands of people are moving to every year. There was kind of an anti-urban feeling, like, you know, that everything should look like Kitsilano, you know, nice houses and maybe a few low-rise apartments. So that area developed at a relatively low density because of that. In other words, we just don't have enough homes and we're not building new ones fast enough. Now on the other side, you have people who look at False Creek North, the former Expo lands, and see it as marking the entrance of massive pools of money from Hong Kong and China, which has turned Vancouver into an unaffordable place for working-class people. Suddenly, it started to show that BC and Vancouver had found themselves playing a much bigger game than they expected. We were out of our league, I think, and it became more and more apparent over time how out of our league, money-wise, we actually were. So what is it? Do we need to build, 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 or do we need to stop the flood of foreign money? Today, I'm going to take a close look at both of these arguments and try to answer the biggest question in Vancouver. Just how the hell did things get this way? Real estate mania is at an all-time high in this country. And in no place is that more true than in Vancouver. 
everyone is trying to figure out what went wrong. And today, we're going to try to answer that question. But to get there, we're going to tell you two completely different kinds of stories. On one side, the people to blame are snooty property owners, overreaching bureaucrats, and gutless politicians. And on the other, it's the transnational criminal gangs who have turned Vancouver into a global narco capital built on dirty money. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's look at the first argument, that the problem is a lack of housing supply. The story goes something like this. Back in the middle of the 20th century, Vancouver was building a lot of big apartment complexes. The West End had been booming and with high rises going up from the 50s to until 72. That year, the team council was elected and they brought all of that to a stop. They were seen as really progressive because they said, we're going to pay more attention to neighborhood groups and what they want. And they essentially killed off a lot of high-rise development. And of course, now those apartments are seen as like this incredibly valuable housing stock in Vancouver. It's like the cheapest housing practically that you can get is these 1970s apartments. Team only had a brief time in power. For all of the 1980s and 1990s, the Nonpartisan Association, Vancouver's dominant center-right political party, was back in control. And while they were very aligned with developer interests, the NPA confined new buildings to certain neighborhoods like False Creek or to major arterial roads. So entire swaths of the city, especially the wealthier west side, remained untouched. In the 2000s, Cope and then eventually Vision Vancouver were more pro-density, allowing condo towers to rise in certain parts of the city. But during their tenure, housing prices shot to the moon and renters were increasingly squeezed. Vision was unceremoniously kicked out of power by voters in 2018 in an election that was seen as a referendum on housing, with Mayor Kennedy Stewart winning on a mandate to build more rental housing. But since then, not enough new housing has been built. Even today, around 60% of the city is zoned exclusively for single-family homes, meaning you can't build townhouses or apartments in most of Vancouver. And even when the zoning is changed and new housing developments are approved, that doesn't mean they get built. Between 2016 and 2019, the city of Vancouver greenlit around 5,000 new social housing units. But according to Francis Beulah's reporting, around 4,000 of those have yet to materialize. And I've written about how Vancouver's 
process was always complicated. I've heard about it for 25 years, but the last few years, it seems to have gotten worse. There's a divided city council that has no consensus on housing, and more and more demands are being placed on developers by the bureaucracy. So you end up with a city where you have 15 or 16 departments that have each been given their marching orders. Like you have to save every tree in the city. You have to preserve heritage. You have to make sure that every building is sustainable and energy efficient. You have to make sure there's enough parking, you know. And so every project comes under the scrutiny of all these different departments that are each trying to carry out their mandate with no one at the top saying, hey, look, We need housing built. Like, maybe we can just not make someone spend $5 million to build around a tree in this particular case. Or maybe we can stop fussing about the balcony railings. It's a system where the problems have kind of piled on over the years with no one able to slice through. Frances Beulah knows personally how hard it is to build anything in Vancouver. Not just from her experience as a reporter, But over the last few years, she embarked on a project to build a laneway house for her daughter's family to live in. And a laneway house, in case you don't know, is a small house built behind an already existing home right next to the laneway. So I told everyone when we started, I said, just don't start packing your boxes yet. This could be a weird process. We don't know what's going to happen. Everyone just be patient. And it did get weird. There was an old zoning rule that allowed her to build one on her property, but pretty quickly the city stepped in. And then the city decided there were too many people doing that. They felt like it was too inconsistent the way projects were being approved. So they decided, no, we're going to rezone the whole area instead to standardize everything. They wouldn't grandfather us. Because even though we'd spent a year negotiating at the city, we hadn't put in the formal development application yet. Because that's typically how it works. You negotiate with the city for a year or more about what your development application is going to say, and then you put it in. It ended up taking us five years. We paid an extra $35,000 in construction costs simply because of the delay. But I do still feel lucky because my neighbor spent $40,000 trying to do the same thing and eventually gave up. I know someone else who spent $75,000 and then gave up because the city's requirements. She just eventually realized she could never meet them. Now, a laneway house is a pretty small project, all things considered. But Frances says that all of the difficulties she faced is consistent with what she hears from developers who want to build in the city. What I hear from builders is even the things that you think are very standard end up being tangled at the city for a very long time for reasons that are not always very clear to understand. So you'd think that it would be a super priority providing housing, but There's a whole level of people underneath the politicians and the people out speaking in public who are, they just see their job as enforcing the rules that they were told to enforce, and that's what they're doing. Take what happened in Shaughnessy in 2019. Shaughnessy is one of the poshest neighborhoods in Vancouver, filled with big mansions and golf clubs. And the city proposed rezoning one small part of it for a three and a half story townhouse project. 
That was a very interesting one because I think a lot of people saw it as a slam dunk. Like who wouldn't support that instead of yet another $5 million or whatever, $10 million. I don't even know how much the mansions in Shaughnessy are, but a lot. You know, some townhouses, which no, they're not affordable. They're not like cheap low-rise rentals, but they're still cheaper than what was there and, you know, sort of introduces an area like Shaughnessy to the idea of a different form of housing. Instead, opposition lined up against it immediately. The townhouses would have gone in next to a hospice, and the Vancouver Hospice Society came out strongly against the project. And they made some pretty strange arguments. The hospice did mount quite an effective opposition to it and made some strange anti-renter comments like renters move a lot, so there'll always be moving vans coming in and out and that'll be very disruptive to our hospice patients. You know, like that was one thing that somebody said to me. The arguments got even weirder from there. And then a number of other funny things happened, like there were some early discussions with the neighborhood about the form and various amenities. And people said, well, there needs to be more parking. Otherwise, all these people are going to come and park in Shaughnessy and we won't be able to park on our streets, which is kind of funny because Shaughnessy is one of the emptier areas where there's always loads of parking. So they put in more parking, and then when it came to council, one of the councillors said, well, I'm very concerned about this project because it's got so much parking in it. You know, it's just encouraging car use. And then another councillor said she was worried that it would wreck the look of the street because Granville has a lot of hedges all along the street, very tall hedges, and she worried it would sort of disrupt the continuity of that. City council voted to kill the project. Now, remember, this was in a neighborhood with some of the lowest density in the city. If you can't build a modest townhouse in that kind of a neighborhood, what hope is there for increasing housing supply anywhere else? Take, for example, what's been happening in Kitsilano. Kits is exactly the kind of neighborhood most people would picture when they think of Vancouver. It's a beach community nestled right up against English Bay, And when you're standing by the water, you have a crystal clear view of the glass towers of downtown Vancouver, and just behind them, the North Shore Mountains. All the neighborhoods in Vancouver have kind of their own distinct personality. And historically, I think Kitts was kind of a little bit, a little bit hippie, a little bit maybe surf oriented. And that kind of California beach vibe, I think, is what a lot of people would say. My name is Lindsay Murphy. I've lived in Kitts for 12 years, just about. Lindsay's first place in Kitsilano was a one-bedroom she rented with her partner. We started to make a family and realized that there really wasn't a lot of options if if you wanted a two-bedroom or, you know, heaven forbid, a (laughs) three-bedroom. They they don't exist. They looked around at other neighborhoods but wanted to stay in Kits. So they toughed it out in the one-bedroom as long as they could, applying for spots in housing cooperatives. And they got lucky. Lindsay, her partner, and their two young children are now living in a three-bedroom co-op in Kits. It's the Vancouver equivalent of winning the lottery. But as she got to know some of the other parents in her neighborhood, she heard about the other side of things. A lot of them were constantly fearful of being evicted. Many of them had entire families of four or five people crammed into one or two bedrooms. 
And to me, that didn't make a lot of sense. I think a healthy community has a lot of diversity, a lot of different mixed income levels, families, single people. However, she soon learned that not all her neighbors felt the same way that she did. In February, the provincial government announced that they would be building a social housing development next to a new SkyTrain station in Kitsilano. They'd be turning a vacant lot across from a private school into a 12-story tower that would house around 140 people at risk for homelessness. And that did not go over well with some Kits residents. What's going to happen once we have 140 drug users living 30 meters from the school and 30 meters from the playground? The social media posts came hot and fast. The building was simply too large. Drug users were about to take over the neighborhood. And won't somebody please think of the children? But Lindsay and a few other Kits residents, they felt differently. They welcomed the new development. So they started an organization called Kits for Inclusivity. We're from quite a, a varied background, but we all believe that supportive housing belongs everywhere in the city. It's not just a downtown east side problem. Lindsay started to show up to the consultation meetings, which were taking place on Zoom, and she was often the only person present in favor of the development. And that's led to some heated accusations. We've been accused of being paid by someone. <laughs> we're, not, we're not sure who, but that's certainly not the case. I think initially there was a lot of disbelief that anyone would support the project, which was surprising that it was so far out of people's consciousness that they assumed we had to have been paid. We held a small rally and we were accused of busing people in (laughs) to attend that rally. It does get personal really, really quickly, which is unfortunate. Now, some might say that this was a classic case of nimbyism gone wild. Snooty residents looking down on poor people who might move to their neighborhood. But the opposition to new housing comes from people on all sides of the political spectrum. Connor Doherty, who wrote the book about housing in San Francisco, which I'm sure you've heard of, and Randy Shaw, who's a housing activist in San Francisco, have both talked about how liberal, progressive, left-leaning groups have actually been those who have often been the most opposed to allowing more affordable kinds of housing, townhouses, basement suites, accessory dwellings, laneways, you know, small apartment buildings and so on. They've often been the ones the most opposed. The arguments that come from the left are often reflective of the rhetoric that came out of the Teen Council in the 1970s, that we need to maintain neighborhood character, that new developments, especially condos, will speed up gentrification, that amenities are being overtaxed, More housing is important, they'll say, but this just isn't the right location for it. And one of the most important points, according to Francis, is that all of this isn't just a Vancouver problem. Housing affordability is becoming a growing problem in big urban centers around the world. Smaller towns are now starting to experience the same thing. And it is an issue. It's an issue because people are moving around the world, the country, the province, And there is not enough housing for where they're moving to. And I hear this all the time from smaller towns, like how severe the housing problems are, the homeless camps in Nanaimo and Duncan and Sycamus and Salmon Arm and you name it. 
Frances knows that not everyone in Vancouver agrees with her on what's at the root of these problems. I know that I get called a supplyist by my critics because I see that the problems that Vancouver has are in many cities. There may be a little bit more so here because of the mix of investors we have from elsewhere, because it's a super pretty city that I keep saying we need to put out more Twitter pictures of the rain, but no one ever listens to me. But um, the people who focus on the demand side tend to focus on those things that they think are unique to Vancouver and only Vancouver suffers from this. My experience of housing issues is that basically the job-rich cities around the world are experiencing the same phenomenon to greater or lesser degrees, depending on various factors. And Vancouver is in that mix. Maybe it's on the higher end of problems. But there's something going on that's worldwide. There's another way that you can tell the story of how housing got so bad in Vancouver over the last few decades that has little to do with overreaching bureaucrats and protectionist neighborhood associations. And that begins with the Five Dragons in 1975. And that is when some very high-level corrupt police officers from Hong Kong that were involved with triads and, and heroin trafficking fled from an independent corruption commission and landed in Vancouver and Toronto, but mostly Vancouver, buying up large lots of land. That's Sam Cooper. I'm an investigative journalist, and I started uh, around 2005, 2006 in Vancouver, worked my way up into the daily newspapers there, and now I'm at Global News. Sam Cooper recently published a book called Willful Blindness, How a Criminal Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. Five corrupt Hong Kong police officers had come to Canada, and they brought with them a lot of money. And they used that money to buy Vancouver property. Just one of them, a man named Han Quing Shum, had purchased 11 properties in the city's wealthiest neighborhoods. And up to 44 other corrupt officers followed the Five Dragons, purchasing tracts of property themselves when they arrived. Sam Cooper sees that case as a sign of what was to come in Vancouver. By the time Expo 86 came along, it wasn't just corrupt cops bringing their cash to British Columbia. Instead, it was the richest men in Hong Kong, men like Li Ka-shing, Stanley Ho, and Cheng Yu-tung. These are incredibly powerful men involved in a number of legitimate businesses. But in the 1990s, they were all also investigated by the RCMP and CSIS for their connections to the triads in Hong Kong. The triads are the largest and most influential organized crime groups in the city. Specifically, the latter two men came under the most scrutiny, the casino magnate Stanley Ho and Cheng Yu-tung, whose businesses span everything from casinos to real estate to manufacturing. And that's why Cheng Yu-tun and Stanley Ho have some difficulty when they try to invest in casinos in North America or Australia. And let me say very clearly, none of these men have uh, ever been charged or convicted as a known triad member. And yet the intelligence files and the police files say they were investigated. And uh, furthermore, 
there seemed to be some situations where the RCMP or others wanted to look further into them, or the Hong Kong police wanted to look further into their investments, those three men in Canada. And yet both of those police forces in Hong Kong and Canada seem to run into political walls in Canada, Ottawa specifically. And these tycoons had bought a lot of land. These are people that bought one-sixth or more of the commercial real estate that was used to develop condos in this booming city, Vancouver, way back in the day. So how much of that money was already laundered in Hong Kong before it appears in these major land purchases? Now, we don't know if criminal proceeds were commingled into these investments. But we do know is that in the 1980s and 90s, a lot of triad members came to Canada. Chief among them were the Big Circle Boys. So in the 1980s, uh, the Big Circle Boys, along with a number of other triads, anticipating the geopolitical change, that is Hong Kong, would be handed back to the rule of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. The triads and the Big Circle Boys start to sort of hedge their bets and look for more international bases to operate from because it's not exactly clear what will happen in, in Hong Kong. There are a lot of factors that make Vancouver an attractive place to set up a criminal headquarters. It has deep connections to Hong Kong and China, and it physically borders the U.S. There are a lot of lightly regulated casinos, a hot real estate market, and a busy port without a large law enforcement presence. It's amazing how many Big Circle Boys set up in Canada and how the blueprint of their means of, of arriving in Canada, it's almost the same for, for every case that I looked at. These were very wealthy gangsters, but they would uh, fly to Canada and in most cases lose their identity documents uh, purposely on the flight, flushing them down the toilet or tossing them before they got to the border check. And they would tell border officials in Canada that they were democracy activists in most cases, and they're running from the Chinese Communist Party. That would be the way that they launched into their Canadian citizenship. And it later came to light that the Big Circle Boys and other triads had successfully infiltrated the computer system at the Canadian High Commission in Hong Kong, allowing them to delete any red flags in the system. Through these methods, an unknown number of big circle boys found their way to Canada, and they quickly became successful. By the late 1990s, they controlled the country's heroin trade. Today, one of those big circle boys who made his way to Canada and ended up settling in Toronto, a man named Tseishi Lop, is considered to be one of the most powerful drug traffickers in the world, with his syndicate bringing in over $17 billion a year. He was arrested earlier this year in the Netherlands on his way back to Canada. The Big Circle Boys, probably one of the most successful criminal organizations in the world and criminally brilliant, and their base of operations outside of China is, is Canada in Vancouver and Toronto. And what the Big Circle Boys and other triads brought with them to Vancouver was a method of money laundering that had been developed in Macau, the world's casino capital. Now, the most important fact to understand here is that China strictly controls how much money anyone can take out of the country. 
There's a $50,000 capital export limit for any citizen in China. And so how do you get your money out? The simple way is gambling is illegal in China on the mainland, but it's legal in Macau, an administrative region of China. So officials or, or gangsters in China, anyone that has access to money can travel to the casino in Macau and get their money out. And how do they do that? They put down a payment with an underground bank in China, make an arrangement to travel to Macau, and essentially a gangster, a loan shark, someone operating a casino VIP room, pays them out for that credit they put down in China. At this point, the money is no longer traceable. Now they can gamble, and uh, it's much easier to send your money abroad to Hong Kong or, or further from Macau. By the 1990s, the Big Circle Boys and other triads had imported that model to Vancouver. Once you have your money in Vancouver, that is, you've paid an underground banker connected to really drug money in China, you get your credit paid out, you meet someone in a parking lot in Richmond, B.C., get a, a hockey bag filled with $500,000 in $20 bills was a common transaction. You walk into the casino, they take your chips without question, essentially, and uh, you gamble. You could either get a check if you win, if you're lucky that night, or you could gamble with 20s and let's say uh, you lose maybe $150,000. That's uh, your cost of doing business. So you get $350,000 in $100 bills wrapped to banking standards. This is money now endorsed by uh, BC's government. And who else has laundered money? The drug gang that uh, loaned you that money. That is the $20 bills are coming directly from, you know, at the end of the day, addicts in the downtown east side. So you can see the cycle where rich people are getting money out of China and into Canada. Drug traffickers who have cash they need to get rid of in Richmond, B.C. from drug trafficking can uh, cycle it back to China because often the VIP gambler will pay back that debt in China. So that's how the money is circled around the world, moving drugs and uh, getting money out of China as well. In the early years of the Vancouver model, the triads would send money from Canada back to China using human couriers who would smuggle it onto planes. But in recent years, the enterprise has gotten slicker and more sophisticated. And that's best exemplified by Silver International. Silver International really took the Vancouver model to the next level. This was a, essentially an illegal currency exchange hiding in plain sight. It was in a, a downtown uh, Richmond office tower. It had glass walls that were bulletproof. And inside, financial gangsters were taking deposits of you know, suitcases filled with drug cash from transnational gangs that are operating in Western Canada would take their drug proceeds to silver and then uh, loan sharks that operated in the casinos in uh, Richmond, New Westminster, Burnaby especially would come into silver and take that deposited cash from this criminal underground bank and they would lend it out to these VIP whale gamblers who traveled over from mainland China, Macau and Hong Kong. Silver International became a clearinghouse for criminal money. 
Eventually, international financial intelligence showed that they were laundering $1 billion per year for uh, transnational gangs, mostly based in China, but also Mexican and Colombian cartels, and also especially Middle Eastern organized crime groups. And, uh, you know, the local dial-a-doper gangs in BC uh, were, were involved in, at some level too. Silver International was run by a prominent big circle boy named Paul King Jim who has become the poster boy for the Cullen Commission of uh, Money Laundering in BC because Jin and uh, his alleged big circle boy associate, Kwok Chun Tam, are, are known to be the largest sort of loan sharking operation in British Columbia that facilitated just hundreds of millions of cash flowing into casinos with really no known origins, only that they were working with these uh, ultra-wealthy people that would travel in from China. And a number of people who own substantial amounts of property in the Lower Mainland are connected with Jin and Tam. Take the case of Kevin's son. This man was connected to so many deals, so much real estate, and uh, I found in that earlier story, along with a sort of a co-investigator, a former RCMP money laundering and anti-gang unit uh, commander, that he had been connected to something like a equivalent $500 million fraud with a bank in China, and then somehow magically turned up in Canada around 2000 and started going huge into real estate. There was no business presence in Canada to generate that money, but there was the real estate activity that matched the wealth in China. So what's going on there? This has all, all the flags of methods used to launder money in Canadian real estate. Over $500 million in property had been purchased or sold by companies connected with Kevin Sun. Now, for the record, Kevin Sun has completely denied that he has had any involvement in money laundering or any other illegal activity. But how exactly does organized crime facilitate the purchasing of properties in Vancouver using dirty money from China? We'll take the case of the dentist that Sam Cooper and his former colleague Dan Fumango reported for the Vancouver Sun. They learned about it through a BC Securities Commission case. This, from my perspective, was the most clear, granular view of how money is transferred underground from China and into real estate in Vancouver through organized crime. So in very simple steps, I'll break it down like this. There's a, a person that claims to be an ultra-wealthy executive of some company in China. They travel to Vancouver, make a connection with a local realtor. They get their name somehow on this realtor's land title, claiming to be a Canadian resident. They are not. In this case, it was a woman named Zhang Yun Jiang. Now, all of that is happening on one side, but on the other, you have a group of criminals who are putting together a stock scam. In this case, it was a gold mining company. And they convinced hapless investors, including the aforementioned dentist, to buy into it. But instead of paying in cash, they got them to pay with anonymous bank drafts addressed to none other than Zhang Yun Jiang. The dentist asked why he was putting someone else's name on it, but the scammer just told him, well, that's how things work. Jiang then put hundreds of thousands of dollars into an underground bank in China and flew to Vancouver. 
she was given $470,000 in bank drafts addressed to her and a $50,000 check by her realtor. She deposited the funds in her bank account and then used them to put a down payment on a Vancouver home. So they have their down payment and uh, they have their home in Vancouver. They evaded that $50,000 capital control by using this, let's just call it money laundering node currency exchange that's working with big circle boys, including a person who died shortly after that transaction. Despite the fact that all of this is public knowledge, none of the people involved in the housing side of this fraud were ever sanctioned or prosecuted. All of these are clear cases of criminal proceeds entering real estate in BC. But the housing market in the Lower Mainland is worth well north of a trillion dollars. Has any of this actually had an impact on prices? That's the multi-hundred billion dollar question. There's been at least one attempt to put a solid number on how crime affects Vancouver real estate. A big sort of leap of evidence in my book and reporting was when I obtained an RCMP uh, criminal intelligence study that found sort of just at the very high end of luxury real estate, homes worth three to 30 million, they found $1 billion was connected to known organized crime and financial crime, and most specifically to this Vancouver model method. So that's at the very high end. So there's a lot going on in Vancouver. And to me, it's safe to say that money laundering has a, a very material impact on real estate prices there. Sam Cooper sees Vancouver as a city that's quite literally now built on corruption and narco dollars. You know, one of my American sources said, uh, we figured out this sort of bulk cash, egregious money laundering in Miami in the 1980s. We realized that Miami more or less is a city built on sort of South American official corruption money and how that interrelates with global cocaine money. We realized it and and acted on it. And in Vancouver, you let it go for decades, but it, it, it's like you traveled back in time in Vancouver to the 1980s, Miami Vice, Crockett and Tubbs uh, kind of scenario. That's what we saw up to 2015 in Vancouver happening. So what do I think of these two very seemingly opposed explanations for what's happened in Vancouver? Honestly, I think they're both true. Vancouver clearly has a supply issue. Anyone who takes a walk around the city can see that. Most Vancouver neighborhoods feel decidedly suburban with one single family home after another, after another, after another. And yet cities like Vancouver are where the jobs are. So more people, whether from abroad or from the rest of Canada, are going to continue to move there. And as for the criminal foreign money, I find Sam Cooper's reporting compelling. We already know that one of the biggest global stories over the last half century has been the movement of enormous amounts of capital from newly wealthy elites of developing countries into the real estate markets of the West. What made Vancouver different was that criminal entrepreneurs turned this into an industry and the police and politicians ignored it for so long. These aren't the only factors that contribute to sky-high housing prices. We didn't even get to the roles that things like domestic speculation, legal foreign speculation, and rock-bottom interest rates play. But if we're going to make Vancouver a city that more people can actually live in, 
you have to attack the problem from all sides. Build more fancy high-rise condos and housing for low-income people in all parts of the city. Law enforcement should work hard to ensure that dirty money doesn't find its way into the housing market, and then start thinking about even more radical solutions. Mass government-owned social housing developments. Maybe upzone entire neighborhoods, especially wealthy, low-density areas like Shaughnessy. Institute aggressive speculation taxes. Maybe even a capital gains tax on home sales so that the community gets some money back from these skyrocketing valuations. We'll need all of that and so much more. The only problem is we're unlikely to get any of it. Neither Francis Beulah nor Sam Cooper expect housing to ever truly become affordable in Vancouver, at least not like it was. The cities where housing prices go down, it's usually because of some catastrophic political or economic event. And I don't see Vancouver being hit by some terrorist or economic catastrophe that's going to drastically change the calculations here. She thinks we need to accommodate ourselves to the new reality, build smaller spaces that could be affordable to more people, and make sure that some types of housing are free from speculation for the poorest and the most vulnerable residents. As for Sam Cooper, he's now moved to Ottawa with his young family, leaving Vancouver behind. The horse is out of the barn. That market, I don't think it'll ever come back to normal. I just don't think it will. That's your episode of Commons. If you liked this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Francis Beulah, Sam Cooper, Doug Ward of the Taiyi, Jesse Donaldson, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Dami Lola Oname. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. And Rita Moreno couldn't land a role of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.